Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's great to be back on the air, and I'm sure many of you are wondering, when would Kirk be back on the air again next? Well, I will admit it had been at least a good four days um, until just now that I had um, gotten back on the air. But, you know, I've had other things going on, and um, that's not a bad thing either, too. However, during the time uh, that I was last on the air with you all, I was able to prepare not only for the podcast that I'm doing, um, right, that I'll be doing um, here momentarily for uh, this uh, episode, but also I have uh, started uh, preparing for uh, the next podcast that I will do, uh, which I hope to be able to do within the next uh, two days after this one. So, as I've said before, and I could say it again, life doesn't revolve around podcasting. Life has to revolve around other elements, uh, which is um, not always a bad thing. But it's also, but also, you should, you know, make the time to not only enjoy doing the other things in life that you like to do, but also prepare for for other um, things that lead up to what it is that you like to do in your spare time, which in my case is with uh, podcasting. Uh, so during the days that I'm not on the air. I can find time in between when doing other things to uh, prepare for what lies ahead. It's all about strategizing, stra- all about strategically, um, what I call strategic preparation and uh, organization, which go very well hand in hand. So when I was on the air last time with you all, we talked about uh, how the United States uh, military struck back by both land and by sea. And, you know, obviously the title to the book we're discussing written by Mary Elise Antoine, is The War of 1812 in Wisconsin, The Battle for Prairie du Chien. Many of you all are beginning to wonder, when exactly is this actual battle going to take place? Well, I will tell you all this now, so this way you have a good indication, that after this podcast episode, the next podcast we will be discussing will be um, the actual battle itself. However, we should keep in mind that in order to understand why a battle takes place, it's just not one of those things that happens overnight, where two parties decide that uh, from opposing forces decide, okay, we're going to declare war on the opposition, and the opposition's going to do the same on us. So we're just going to meet out in the battlefield, and we're going to take aim, fire, and see who becomes the victor at the end of the day. That's not the way um, it works in battles, or let alone um, in battlefield combat. More often than not, history has uh, shown us, or proven to us, for a matter of fact, that when a battle takes place, in some instances, it can last more than one day. And that may not necessarily be a bad thing either, too. So, more often than not, the textbooks have sometimes proven to us that, depending on the conflict, and what's at stake that more often than not we've been led to believe that battles are just one-day skirmishes or one-day incidents where once the victor the victor emerges victorious that's the end of the conflict well we've learned that sometimes even that isn't always the case either so in this particular uh, episode that we're going to be discussing with regards to the war of 1812 in Wisconsin the battle for Prairie du Chien we're going to um discuss uh, a little a little bit more about William Clark. We're also going to uh, discuss about um, 
how he goes about um, basically uh, going up the um, how do I call it? He his uh, expedition to the up to Prairie du Chien. So I know some of you might think, uh, did you just give away a secret? No, but I'm telling you what's important as to what we're going to be discussing about. Number one, we're going to continue to discuss about William Clark, but number two, we are going to be discussing that he um, that he in fact is the one who um, becomes the first um, American leader prominent American leader to um, journey into uh, Prairie du Chien. But we also have to learn um, what it takes for him to be able to uh, command a voyage to Prairie du Chien. So let's um, start off with our leadoff question. And it's going to be about someone else here first whom has ties with William Clark, but he is someone whom has been uh, forgotten. Who was Ninian Edwards? Does anybody want to take a guess at whom exactly is Ninian Edwards? I'll give you a couple of choices. Is he a governor? That is, is he a governor of, um, of territory in what we call the Northwest Territory? Is he a military officer? Or, or is he someone who works in uh, Washington, D.C. under uh, James Madison's cabinet? or I should say under President James Madison's cabinet. Well, the answer is choice A. Ninian Edwards is a governor of a territory. He is the governor of the Illinois Territory, but he was also one of many American government officials whom feared that Robert Dixon, the, Brit the, the well-to-do uh, British Indian uh, trader agent, Ninian Edwards, along with many other American government officials, feared that Robert Dixon had the power to unite Indian tribes by means of using Prairie du Chien as an outlet for attacking American settlements in both Illinois and in Missouri. Of course, we all know that Prairie du Chien is in what we now know Wisconsin, and Prairie du Chien borders uh, is on the Wisconsin-Illinois line. However, you know, we all know by this point in time, early 19th century, Wisconsin's not a state yet. The only state that, that has been carved out of the Northwest Territory that is an actual state in the Union is Ohio. But remember this, though, folks, too, that for Ninian Edwards and other American um, government officials, their fear is that these Indian tribes whom are using, that could use Prairie du Chien as an outlet for attacking American settlements in Illinois and Missouri, would make their way southward along, uh, what do you call it, along American posts that are uh, right along um, the upper and lower Mississippi River, most notably the upper Mississippi, and launch uh, surprise attacks on us without any warning. So basically what we as a nation right now are not so much living in fear over, but have have a certain degree of fear over is what could lie at stake from north of St. Louis being Prairie du Chien and what those Indian forces could do by coming southward in terms of attacking um, American settlements in the Illinois and um, most notably the Illinois Territory, but what we now know is uh, present-day St. Louis, Missouri. You know, there is a place in Illinois 
not far from St. Louis, Missouri. It's called Edwardsville, Illinois. And it just so happens to be named after the Illinois territorial governor being none other than Mr. Uh, Ninian Edwards. So anytime you think you hear of Edwardsville, Illinois, uh, think of Ninian Edwards. And Edwardsville, Illinois is right on the Illinois-Missouri line, uh, close to uh, St. Louis. Ninian Edwards, his concerns stemmed largely in part due to early American defeats from the previous year, uh, around uh, when war, right after war had been officially declared against England. Those American defeats were at Mackinac Island to the surrender of Detroit and the abandonment of uh, Fort Dearborn. So yes, Ninian Edwards, he's got every reason to be worried because he doesn't know what could lie at stake for the people of uh, the Illinois Territory. What new appointment post did William Clark receive on June the 16th, 1813? Does he get a uh, cabinet post in President James Madison's uh, administration? Or does he become a territorial governor himself? He becomes a territorial governor. He becomes the Missouri, he becomes the Missouri Territory Governor. But he also retains the position of Indian Affairs Agent west of the Mississippi. Okay? Well, when I think of cities that are west of the Mississippi, how about St. Louis? How about St. Louis, Missouri? How about Chicago, Illinois? Just to name a few um, cities that we know of today that lie west of the Mississippi River. But at the same time, you know, the Mississippi River does um, flow into uh, Iowa. It makes its way into Iowa and into a portion of Missouri. But when we think of places like St. Louis, Missouri, we tend to think of those cities as being, that, that city is one being west of the Mississippi. So as for William Clark, he is uh, the Indian Affairs agent for west, west of the Mississippi. So his, it's fair to say that for William Clark, his duties are not dull or boring whatsoever. He is the right person for the job, though, I can tell you that much. He now has control over all Indian affairs, including direct command of the territorial militia. You know, the militia folks, uh, I learned this the last time I was in Williamsburg, oh, probably about three weekends ago. Matter of fact, my wife and I are, are hoping to get back there again here soon, but uh, we learned that um, someone had told us from the magazine house, uh, which is where the militia would go, uh, when it was t called upon for uh, service or for training purposes that uh, militia, as we know it, was still around up until um, up until about the time the civil the United States Civil War broke out. And of course, as we know, the militia was seen as the equivalent of a modern day uh, National Guard by today's standards. but but let's keep in mind that even in the start early start of the 19th century, we still have what are called militias. But then again, President James Madison has been putting all of his eggs in one basket with the hopes that the militia will be the ones that can defeat the British. And he's, had been, he's been having to learn the hard way um, 
most notably with uh, the fallouts at Canada, um, even with what happened at uh, Detroit, you know, Fort Dearborn, Mackinac Island. The only sign of uh, luck for James Madison has been at uh, Fort Meigs and at uh, Lake Erie in Ohio, uh, thanks to uh, Oliver Hazard Perry, who commanded the uh, fleet of ships at uh, Lake Erie that uh, basically, um, with the victories there at Fort Meigs and at Lake Erie, gave the United States complete control over that uh, lake as well as the Upper Northwest uh, Territory as well as eventually making their forces made their way in, from into um, what's called um, along the Thames River in Canada where uh, Tecumseh, who is the leader of the Shawnee Nation, um, he was um, taken out along with other Indians and the dream of a uh, united Indian front pretty much died when uh, Tecumseh um, perished at, this, at the battle along the Thames. Of course, I know I mentioned that from the previous podcast, but it's just kind of a uh, what I call a recap for where we're at right now. William Clark's duties, I should point out, were similar to those of Robert Dixon's. William Clark himself, since 1810, had been advocating for a U.S. Army post at Prairie du Chien. So, you know, this idea of a of an army post at Prairie du Chien isn't something that just happens overnight. William Clark has been advocating this for quite some time. He knows that he knows just how vital this place is. After all, Prairie du Chien is it's almost like a fertile crescent. You know, you've got the flow of goods going in one direction, then they're going in another direction, but but goods are also coming from opposite directions to Prairie du Chien, and they are not only benefiting just the uh, British, but they are benefiting all the Indian tribes whom have taken up their allegiances to the crown. Yes, I know the United States defeated the mightiest empire 30-some years earlier, but for the Indian nations along the upper Mississippi and western Great Lakes, Their loyalties are to the crown, a.k.a. King George III and the mother country, England. Well, how did, um, had William Clark been in discussion for some time with government officials about an expedition up the Mississippi River? Yes. For about two years, folks, he had been in discussion. And this included strengthening relations amongst the Indian tribes like the Osage, who lived along the Missouri River. Of course, when I think of the Osage uh, Nation, I think of, um, there is a place in Iowa called Osage, Iowa. After all, the Osage Indian Nation lived in what we now know as present-day Iowa, where the Missouri uh, River, uh, part of the Missouri River goes into. And eventually it makes its way into uh, South Dakota and into um, all the way into Montana. For William Clark, um, he knows that the only way he can uh, really, one of the primary ways for achieving success is, yes, to uh, strengthen um, relations amongst the Indian tribes, most notably not only along the Missouri River, but even along the upper Mississippi. But he wanted to strengthen relations amongst um, one particular nation, being that of the Sac Nation, given that there were uh, current divisions in that um, Indian nation over loyalties. And what I mean by loyalties, you have half of the uh, Sac Indian nation 
with their loyalties directly with England, and then the other half, say, maybe two or three uh, nations are wanting to side with the British, and then you've got another two or three um, groups of the SAC nation who are pretty much undecided on where to go. So we must keep in mind that many Indian tribes, while yes, we know of the Sioux and um, we know of, uh, say, the Chippewa in this region, but what we have to keep in mind is that there are plenty of Indian tribes who split their tribe into different groups. And the only way, reason I know this is because um, I had learned from reading a book a few years ago about, um, about the uh, Cherokees. And I want to say, I think it was like a colonial crisis it was. But the Cherokees divided their Indian tribe, Indian tribal nation into three groups. You had the Upper Cherokee, the Middle Cherokee, and the Lower Cherokee. So in other words, the Cherokee tribe wasn't confined to just one region. Their, um, their nation included what we now know as far southwest Virginia, far western North Carolina, into um, the easternmost parts of Tennessee, northwest South Carolina, and uh, perhaps um, the northernmost parts part of uh, Georgia. So that, that there is a that would explain why, for the Cherokee Nation, for example, to be split into what you call the Upper, Middle, and Lower Cherokee Nations. So, anyways, not to get off track, but it's just an example of what we should be reminded of in terms of how Indian nations um, went about um, occupying their territories and how, with a vast amount of land, they could. Um, they could divide their groups into more than just um, one uh, party based upon um, how large their, um, their, the territory that the tribes themselves um, encompassed in terms of their um, empire. Before the War of 1812 broke out, how many military posts did the United States have in the Upper um, Northwest Territory? Anybody want to take a guess? Uh, I'll give you some choices. How about, uh, I'll give you three choices. Uh, choice one was at four. Choice two was at six. Choice three, more than six. Uh, the answer is choice two, or what we would say choice B, the answer is six. One of them I, I'm going to mention here that I thought was of uh, significant importance was a fort called Fort Madison that was located on the west side of the Mississippi River. This fort for the Americans um, served as a fur factory, but it was considered to be the northernmost fort along the upper Mississippi. Sadly, this fort, was in, this fort endured attacks by the Sac Indians and other tribes pretty much to the point where this fort was no longer functioning. So is it fair to say that, okay, you've lost a vital fort because of uh, Indian attacks on it? Is it fair to say that you need a new fort to, um, to not only thwart off Indian attacks, but a new fort that could be uh, designed for um, defense preparations, but also for, um, for the necessary storing of uh, essential provisions? Yes. So we're going to find out here um, 
who all is involved in the um, ideas of uh, constructing a new fort. Now, here's another person who many of us probably don't know anything about, and that's okay, but I'll mention his name here. His name is Benjamin Howard. He was the Missouri Territory Governor prior to William Clark, prior to William Clark getting the job. Benjamin Howard switched over to the military command post being the head of the 8th Military District, which included the Illinois and Missouri Territories. September of 1813 being the same month and year when Oliver Perry and his uh, naval fleet defeated the British ships at Lake Erie. Um, it was at the same month and year, September 1813, where General Howard led an expedition with 1,300 troops comprised of, mil of Missouri and Illinois militias up the Illinois River into uh, present-day Peoria, Illinois. So we have to keep in mind that this conflict, War of 1812, it's happening in different um, in different uh, locations around the United States. As I had mentioned from a much earlier podcast, more than likely when I uh, did the intro for this um, for this book discussion, but we should keep in mind that while yes, a battle is taking place or a battle is soon to take place, that there is other activity going on in, in another part of the uh, United States that pertains to this conflict. And it doesn't necessarily have to involve a, an actual battle. In this case, uh, Benjamin Howard has led an expedition with 1,300 troops comprised of Missouri and Illinois militias up the Illinois River, and, and he has helped, and he is leading a uh, mission into what into what we now know as present-day Peoria, and perhaps this might be a mission that will allow him to um, perhaps maybe propose a fort being built there, or perhaps coming up with a strategy on how to keep out invaders, meaning um, Indian nations whom are not friendly to the United States. Anybody know where Peoria is located? Is it anywhere near Chicago, or is it south of Chicago? It's south of Chicago. Uh, Peoria is outside of Illinois' capital, Springfield. Whom did uh, William Clark go to for planning out the mission behind securing Prairie du Chien? Did he go directly to President James Madison? Or did he go directly to the Secretary of War? He went directly to the Secretary of War. The Secretary of War, who served under James Madison uh, up until 1814, was a very, very complex individual. In my opinion, he was a poor choice. And the only reason I say that he's a poor choice, or he was a poor choice, was based off of uh, Steve Vogel's book that I read through The Perilous Fight uh, that I did a podcast series on last year. For those of you who remember, uh, through the perilous fight, being uh, from the burning of Washington to the Star-Spangled Banner and the six weeks that saved the nation. Uh, long story short, uh, John Armstrong uh, served as James Madison's Secretary of War, but he was one of those individuals who was just very hesitant about going along with any proposal suggested or uh, any proposal that was necessary to facilitate change that would actually help improve an existing situation. What I find interesting is that at one time, folks, that uh, presidents in the early years of the Republic 
we have to keep in mind in the early days of our republic's existence, we didn't have all the cabinet departments like we have today. The only primary ones that we know of that still exist today are Secretary of State, uh, Treasury. I mean, those departments, yes, are still in play, but they are some of the older departments that have been around since the time of our uh, republic's um, inception. So. In the early years of the Republic's existence, presidents uh, nominated members of their cabinet based upon region. So, yes, you can nominate people, but it had to be an even balance between northern and southern states. And I'll have to mention a little bit more about that in another podcast, especially uh, regarding John John Armstrong. But as for William Clark, he wrote multiple letters to Armstrong explaining the significance behind Prairie du Chien, including why he himself was the right person for the expedition. Okay? I think it's great that William Clark has written multiple letters. I think he's the right person for this expedition. He's been in Missouri long enough to know all the ins and outs of this uh, situation, given that even though it's not a world war, but in a sense it might as well be, when considering that we are dealing with uh, Indians along the western frontier whom are still... Um, whom are still aligned to a country whom we had defeated 30 years earlier, who is still wreaking havoc on our ships on the seas, um, impressing our men against our own, their own will to fight alongside the fight with with alongside the British, being the British Navy. So for um, William Clark, it's almost like. It's almost like he's talking to John Armstrong, Secretary of War Armstrong, as if Armstrong is blue in the face, or rather a a complete wall. So did Secretary of War John Armstrong think opposite about Prairie du Chien? Yes, he did. He didn't see the need for an expedition to take place. Yeah, this guy is really out of touch. Wouldn't you say that, folks? I would. Well, William Clark wrote letter. William Clark wrote letters while Armstrong failed to support his requests or proposals. A letter from March 28th of 1813 mentioned, per Clark, that Robert Dixon acquired five boats filled with ammunition and goods. And Dixon and his men and his um, other British Indian agents, including Indians themselves, they took these uh, provisions all the way into um, Labaye, or what we now know as present-day Green Bay, Wisconsin, where Dixon himself went about mustering large Indian numbers. In other words, he was able to garner more Indian support by it for, in, in other words, for Indians who wished to join his cause. The information that Clark received was pretty much from multiple sources, including Indians themselves who did not know who they were going to take sides with. So in other words, for all we know, William Clark could have obtained information from, uh, from a group of uh, Sac Indian um, tribes within the Sac Nation who um, provided Clark with this information. So the good news is that, yes, Clark still has hope and potential to establish alliances with Indians whom are undecided. However, 
It all is going to come down to whether or not Secretary of uh, War John Armstrong really cares about the, the circumstances that, is, that the situation itself is now getting it, is now becoming. I would think it's a red flag knowing that Robert Dixon acquired five boats filled with ammunition and goods and has taken them not just so much into Green Bay, but he is mustering large Indian numbers. Is, is it fair to say that perhaps our national security is a concern, not just because of the Indians, but what lies at stake along the territories, that like of the Illinois Territory? After all, Ninian Edwards, Governor Ninian Edwards, is very concerned about what could happen in his, in his uh, territory if nothing is done to enhance uh, further uh, protective measures. Did William Clark allow himself to get held back despite Secretary of War Armstrong's opposition? No. Clark himself knew he had to take matters into his own hands, but, also, but he also knew that it would require communicating with military leaders like Major General William Henry Harrison. You know, Gen Major General William Henry Harrison is not one of those uh, officials who's going to sit back and, and do nothing. He's, you know, all military leaders have to be on the offensive as well as the defensive. But in a crisis like this, you might as well do everything there is in your power to go on the offensive. Because if not, when the unexpected happens, how are you going to be able to prepare for it without even knowing what it was like to go on the offensive to begin with? So March of 1813 saw this was going to be a challenging time for William Clark. Now the expiration of military enlistments begins to take place. William Clark now has to start over from scratch to where he will have to go about recruiting up to 150 men for two months. And these enlistments, folks, are not three-year enlistments. Remember from the early days of the American Revolution, most notably the trying time of 1776, December 1776, that is, folks, when when enlistments were about to expire um, and George Washington knew that he couldn't wait till the spring for an attack. He had to do something very, very bold and quick. The Battle of Trenton um, that took place uh, Christmas night. The trek along the Delaware River. Uh, the attack that pretty much um, stunned the world, restored morale to the cause. As a result of that, enlistments went back up. Morale was restored. Well, we could say that there might be a I don't know if I would say the morale crisis is bad here, but the fact of the matter that uh, enlistments are um, expiring, you know, Pretty much I can tell you this much, folks. In the War of 1812, if you're a militiaman, your enlistment is up for, is pretty much a 60-day uh, enlistment. So for many of these men, that's about two months at best right there. Okay, two months is up. Well, now I've got to start over from scratch. I've got to find um, 100 men or more at best for another two months. That's not to say that maybe some men would have stayed on, but the bottom line is the majority of them didn't. 
I don't know. Can you blame them? It's hard to know. It's hard to tell. For some of them, maybe they needed to go back to their families. But the bottom line is, is that William Clark is in a very, very tight uphill battle now with um, trying to get uh, new recruits. But once the number of men available was met, which it was, so now we can breathe a sigh of relief here, the forces, that is, the forces that he has established, would go up and down major rivers to intercept opposing parties. Who do you think those opposing parties could be? They could be British um, agents who are trying to obtain intelligence on what William Clark and his forces might be up to, or they could be Indian um, Indians who are doing the work for the traders, for the British traders. It could be a little bit of both. But William Clark and his forces, I'm sure many of you all are wondering, when exactly do they arrive in the Prairie du Chen? They arrive in the Prairie du Chen, folks, uh, sometime around the start of uh, early May, 1813. How do you think they got there? Well, there are no airplanes back then. There are no automobiles. There are no trains just yet either. So basically, to sum it up, there are no planes, trains, and automobiles. However, there are boats. They're not just little dinky canoes. Well, yes, canoes were used, but you had keel boats. You may have even had bateau boats as well. But you had boats that could hold up to maybe 50 or 70 men at most, depending on how big they were. But of course, you had to have large enough boats for the provisions to be placed on as well. I can only imagine what these uh, boat rides must have been like going up the river, especially facing currents that were that could have uh, led you off stream to where if you weren't careful, you could it could have resulted in a loss of life, or not just a loss of life, but major damage to your boat. So, yes, William Clark and his forces arrived in the Prairie du Chen around the early part of June. And what do you think one of his uh, first priorities was? How about this one? To establish a fort along the upper Mississippi for trading and defense purposes to securing firm ties or alliances with the Sac and the Fox tribes. And how was he going to be able to go about securing, most notably, the um, alliances with such Indian tribes like the Sac and the Fox? It would have been through uh, Nicholas Baldwin, whom we have uh, mentioned many of times that he was the uh, American agent in Prairie du Chien. But I think uh, William Clark is very smart in realizing that one of his first priorities has to be uh, to establish a fort along the upper Mississippi for both trading and defense purposes. Yes, ma maintaining alliances, or in this case developing the alliances, is important, but if you're going to survive up here, you've got to have a, um, you've got to have a good um, solidified uh, defense uh, system. Something that might be the equivalent of what we know of as a modern-day Pentagon in the United States and uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, did William Clark and his men arrive into Prairie du Chien with any opposition? Okay, when I say opposition, could that mean Indians 
whom have uh, loyalties uh, to England. Well, believe it or not, folks, uh, William Clark and his uh, men arrived in, into the Prairie du Chien with no opposition whatsoever. Does it come as a shock? I would, I would say yes. It, when I first read this book, I was kind of surprised by it. So, the majority of the people, not only whom were um, just you know British uh, sub British people, that is people who uh, married into Indian families, or just British people working for the um, British government here in America. They, um, they, they didn't panic, but they left and went elsewhere so that they would uh, not get, um, they didn't want run the risk of getting caught. And the same for the uh, Indian nations as well. So, one of uh, Robert Dixon's um, agents, being a Captain Dees, whom had who served under Dixon advised uh, such tribes like the uh, Fox and the Sioux to prevent American forces from entering onto their territory. So it was caution by the British to tell some of these Indian tribes, hey, look, do whatever it takes to avoid, to keep the Americans from getting on our territory. However, it turns out that the, that the chiefs, the chiefs for not only these tribes, but for other tribes along uh, the prairie, weren't interested in fighting. Could that mean that they are suspicious now of what the British are doing? No. A majority of the people abandoned their homes for shelter in other places. So in other words, it would probably be best not to rush to conflict right away in terms of a battle. For all we know, the Indian nations that were at Prairie du Chien at the time that the uh, Americans arrived may not have had a reasonable size, of, a reasonable number size that could have um, put up a fight with William Clark and his men. Because I can tell you this much, folks: William Clark has brought about 300 men with him to Prairie du Chien. 300 doesn't seem like a lot, but that's a pretty decent-sized number. This is no um, dinky little mission, folks. This is this is the real thing. William Clark had his men go into Robert Dixon's home, folks, where they seized essential documents ranging from conversations between Dixon and uh, Captain Dees, including letters between officers within the British Indian Department to speech documents from various Indian tribes. Breaking and entering. Breaking and entering into the enemy's property without any probable cause. Well, you know something? If I'm, uh, if I'm Robert Dixon, am I worried? Would I be worried if uh, the enemy broke into my home? On one hand, perhaps so, but at the same time, Robert Dixon isn't going to let the enemy intimidate him either by putting him on pins and needles over something like this. So in other words, maybe it's just best if you're the British to let the Americans have their honey earned. In other words, okay, they've made it to Prairie du Chien. Let's see what they really are made of. 
Let's see if they really have what it takes to erect a fort. Let's see if they have what it takes to um, really show that they have what it um, musters in terms of uh, going head to toe with a mighty empire that still hasn't forgotten what defeat, hasn't forgotten the fact that they were defeated 30 years ago by a country whom was uh, subjected to their rule for so long, whom, um, whom somehow did defeat the mightiest empire in the world. So for Robert Dixon, you know, yes, we might see this as an infringement or a breach of, um, of national security, but at the same time, the United States knows that the only way that we're going to be able to... Um, make a stand on this is by actually going into the village of Prairie du Chen and finding out everything there is to know about the British and how they uh, go about doing things. We want to be a step ahead of them, don't we? I'd say so. So William Clark spend, spends multiple days studying Prairie du Chen, including having met with Indian tribes who were established nearby. From from June 5th to June, June 6th, 1813, a selection site for the new fort to the origins of construction took place. The fort itself was a round mound located roughly 300 feet behind houses within the primary village. Atop the mound, the American forces would have unique advantages. Like, what kind of advantages? In other words, they could um, see homes from the opposition, like Robert Dixon's, where, where the fort itself, based upon the fact that it was 300 feet, it was low, 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 about 300 feet behind the houses, most notably of Robert Dixon's. Basically, for the Americans, it would give them access to, to monitoring and controlling British movements within the main village. In other words, officers and military staff could see pretty much like a watchtower. They could see who, what leaders are coming to Dixon, who's leaving. They could see, they pretty much could try to listen to interactions amongst the tribes and um, British traders. Basically, this um, fort is not just a fort that is the typical fort. It's a fort that, well, I mean, any fort can be seen as an institute for gathering intelligence against an enemy or, or, or gathering intelligence against what is perceived to be a credible threat in general to one's national, to a nation's national security. So look at it this way, folks. This fort that was that got built was really used as a purpose for uh, not just so much for defense preparations, but as a means of gathering intelligence for how to go about um, for how to go about uh, trying to lure Indians away from the British into the American camp. Uh, what was the name of the new fort at Prairie du Chen? That is the new American fort. It was uh, Fort Shelby, in honor of Isaac Shelby, who was uh, gov governor of Kentucky. And there is a place in uh, Kentucky called uh, Shelbyville, Kentucky, named after uh, Isaac Shelby. Did any incidents uh, take place between U.S. troops and the Indians during William Clark's time at Prairie du Chen? 
Yes, yes. Most notably between the Winnebago tribe and United States military, um, United States military uh, personnel, where eight Indians lost their lives, that is, eight Winnebago Indians lost their lives by means of violence. That's not a good way to start out uh, with um, trying to establish uh, relations. But you know what? You know what? I, I hate to say this, but sometimes even violence itself is inevitable. Not to get off track, but it was inevitable when the English first set foot in what we now know as present-day Jamestown, Virginia. How do I know this? Because I've learned from, from historians who know for a direct fact that when some of the um, Englishmen got off the ships, the, in, the Indians were stalking them. In other words, they were watching these ships coming in to the bay. They were watching where the ships would go, where they would dock. And once the, in, the Englishmen got off, in, the Indians under the, um, well, the Powhatan, rather, I should say, actually it was the Paspahig. Uh, the Paspahig were part of a uh, larger um, village, uh, what was known as Tsenacomica which was part of the uh, greater um, Powhatan uh, chiefdom of uh, Indian tribes, about 25 or 30 tribes total, but the Paspahig were in the uh, area of uh, present-day Jamestown, and they um, surprised um, the English with um, an attack by means of bows and arrows, where two or three of the Englishmen um, were hit directly, but somehow did survive. So we just we have to keep in mind that, uh, to put it in a nutshell, that violence, sadly, in some instances, is inevitable, especially when it comes to um, one uh, group being the outsider and another group who's already from the inside. And when they don't see eye to eye on things, sadly, uh, violence is often the means of resolution, regardless of how big the problem is. But, uh, but come June 7th, William Clark leaves Prairie Beach for St. Louis, but his presence alone, did his presence, folks, deter Robert Dixon's existing strongholds with Indian tribes? whom had already established their allegiances towards Britain. Do any of you all think that Clark's presence uh, deterred Dixon? Absolutely not. Robert Dixon knows who William Clark is, but Robert Dixon isn't going to let anyone stand in his way. So, did Secretary of War John, John Armstrong know about William Clark's expedition to Prairie du Chien? No. William Clark wrote him letters, but he uh, fabricated the letters. Do you think that was the right thing to do? Well, I know it's probably not right to lie, but William Clark knew all along that the national security was a huge issue here. He knew that he had to get to Prairie du Chien. He knew that he needed to fortify. He knew he had to go about erecting a fort that would serve as a defensive um, barrier against any Indian attack, but most notably as a means of gathering intelligence amongst 
Robert Dixon and other top-level British officials whom were, um, whom were uniting Indians left and right along the upper Mississippi and western Great Lakes. So John Armstrong doesn't know anything about the uh, about what was taking place directly at Prairie du Chien, despite the letters sent to him from William Clark which shared other frontier information, but nothing of top-secret importance. Hey, you can't blame hey, William can't Clark. Blame William after Clark. all, after all, you know he did achieve yeah, he did a fair achieve number of things, things on this, um, on this journey. Uh, journey. He may not have hit all the home runs, but he hit, but he um, hit enough doubles and triples, I guess we could say, to where um, to where he has uh, made it known that the United States isn't going to be intimidated, not only by Indians along the frontier, but most notably the British, who are still retaining their presence in the United States. And they know that we are still struggling in terms of the means of trying to keep them out of the territory once and for all. Well, uh, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, podcast episode, and uh, when I'm on the air again next call with you all, we're going to discuss the battle for Prairie du Chien. But I will tell you all this, too. Um, even after we discuss the battle for Prairie du Chien, I think it's fair to say that we're going to learn some other things that might come as a surprise. After all, we should keep in mind that uh, battles, as I said earlier on, early on, that uh, not all battles were one-day skirmishes. Matter of fact, some of our most uh, prominent battles throughout history, regardless of where they, whether they were in the United States or elsewhere around the world, lasted more than one day. On the one hand, that actually kind of makes learning about that history a little bit more unique. To say, the least. to say the least. Well, thank you again, as always, for listening, and I look forward to being back on the air again soon with all of you. Um, continue to spread the word to uh, others out there who are interested not only in just in history, but want to learn more through podcasting or through Anchor Podcast, uh, which is where I podcast off of. It's free, the opportunities are limitless, and uh, once you come to Anchor, there's no going back. So uh, thank you again for listening, as always, and uh, um, I look and, forward to being uh, back on the air again, on the air again. and uh, take care and, for now, uh, and I hope all of you, wherever you are living, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere around the world, uh, continue to stay safe in these times of uncertainty, but at the same time, continue to do what you all as individuals enjoy doing most in your life. Uh, that to me is the most that important thing because, important thing because uh, you don't want to wake up and you know regret that there were things that you you know maybe didn't get to do that you wish you had done which you uh, do at some point in life. So I enjoy podcasting. I wouldn't trade it, uh, even though I can't revolve my life around it. But still, it's a great way to get the word out when it comes to uh, history and, but most importantly, the history that has been forgotten history or history that we know a great deal about but don't. Necessarily, but necessarily, we're not told the entire story until having say, until having said, uh, read, uh, read a various book or two about the subject. So, thank you again for listening, and uh, I'll be back on the air again here soon with all of you. Take care, and once again, uh, stay safe. Thank you.